You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. So that, uh, Sam, Sam 64. <clears throat> Where we will uh, look at the whole of the Sam. It's, uh, we're, we're looking, when we do communion, we going through the Psalms just slowly, one by one, and um, some may look at this and think, well, it's, it's not an obvious thing that connects with communion, but I hope that you'll see that it does. Hear me, O God, as I voice my complaint. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. Hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from the plots of evildoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim cruel words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent. They shoot suddenly without fear. Life is full of enormous questions. And I think one of the biggest ones is simply this. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do bad people so often seem to get away with things? Now, if you were an atheist, you would say, this is so because there is no God, or this is so, uh, it means that there cannot be a God, it's just so unfair. But if you remove God from the equation, you are still left uh, with a world where things are random, where there's badness, where there's no guarantee that the good guys will win, uh, where you don't even know actually what good and evil actually are. And I think that the atheist problem on this is deep and unsolvable. But for the Christian, we have a problem as well. We believe in a just and loving God, yet bad things still happen. Sometimes people use this as an excuse for not believing in God. And yet, this chapter that we're looking at and the teaching of the whole Bible tells us that it's because God is who he is. He is a God who judges that uh, we can believe and trust and have faith. And this, this is a hard one in some ways because the psalmist, David, is saying that he believes and he trusts in God as judge, a God who brings retribution. And in the modern world and the modern church, And even the modern evangelical church, people just do not like that idea at all and we shy away from it. But I hope that you will see, if you're going to look at the problem of evil and suffering and why bad things happen, that you need a God who is just and fair and a God who punishes evil. Now this particular psalm is tied in with Psalm 63, where uh, it's all, both of them are the situation where Absalom David's son is trying to take his throne from him and kill him. In Psalm 63, the focus is on the security that David enjoys in God. But in Psalm 64, the focus is really on David's enemies and how he can deal with them. So, let's look at it in this way. First of all, the arrows of my enemies, or if you like, the bullets. Now... 
human conflict is not nice. You go home, you go back to your flat, you go back to your friends, you go back to your family, and you've been in church, and you have a blazing row over the dinner table. It is not pleasant. We do not like conflict at all. Or you go to work tomorrow, and work right now is really tough because there's clashes between your colleagues. Or you're part of a a club, a sports club. You're part of a political party, and there's trouble there. There's conflict there. And you come to church, and of course in church there's never any conflict. We are just sweetness and light and love and we we all stand together and hold hands and sing kumbaya and and share uh, with one another. No. There's trouble in the church as well. Bitterness, strife and anger and gossip. I suspect that most of us have not had that Jeremy Paxman moment when we've been decked by somebody because they were so angry with us. Some of you may may have had that and some of you may have done it. Um, uh, It's would be a horrible thing. I did meet a man once who was in Jackson, Mississippi, and he told me that he'd been in church when the minister stood up and he announced that the church was not only going to be open for black members, but they would be eligible to become uh, elders and ministers and so on. And somebody walked up, right, like the church like this, walked right the way up to the front and thumped him in front of the whole congregation. Well, You've not seen that happen here, and hopefully you will never, ever uh, see it happen here. I think, though, for most of us, the harm we experience is the harm of the tongue. You're not going to get beat up tomorrow, are you? You're not going to go to work and someone's going to hit you. You're not going to have a stand-up physical fight in your family. You might. There is physical violence, and there is physical abuse, and it does happen, and we would be unwise to think that it doesn't. But for most of us, the weapon we use is the weapon in our mouths. And we can be vicious with it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. Sometimes you'd be better off with someone decking you than talking about you. And here, David's enemies are doing a great deal of harm to him through the weapon of their tongue. They are words that are used to harm, to deceive, to poison, to discredit, and to hurt. James tells us, James 3, a well-known passage, verse 5, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell you know this and I know this just a word dropped into someone's ear just a little bit of gossip just a complaint just a snidey nasty comment that can wreak havoc it is it is like going uh, in the summer up to the highlands and the heather is very very dry just one match dropped and whoosh the fire can really take off well we can do that with our tongues and so David points out uh, six things I've just put them all uh, with the word see to help you remember first of all he's he's got a complaint he is complaining 
He's experiencing a threat. And the first thing he does is he prays to God for protection. Now, the word complaint is probably unfortunate in translation because it it sounds like moaning. But what he's really saying is, this is what's troubling me. This is what's bothering me. Some of you have got very expressive faces. You can't hide it. Some of you are deadpan. You know, you, we wouldn't know if you were dancing with joy or if you were just, you know, about to deck yourself. You, you, you just, you know, you're deadpan. But some of you, in your face, you can see. And sometimes when you see somebody like that, you say, what's bothering you? What's troubling you? Well, David is deeply troubled by the threat by the manipulation of his enemies and the fact that his enemy is within his own family as well. And I think it's a really good question for us sometimes just to back off and look at ourselves and say, what, what, what is really bothering me? What is troubling me just now? And we'll come back to that. Second, verse 2, is a conspiracy. Hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from the plots of evildoers. There's a clique And this is not a company of friends. These are people who are gathering together in order to harm and in order to hurt. And that's a horrible thing. Have you ever experienced that? When people are meet together and they're doing it to get at you. Thirdly, verse 3, there's cruel words. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim cruel words like deadly arrows. Words that are designed to hurt. Proverbs 16, 27, a scoundrel plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. A perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip separates close friends. Their words are like poisoned arrows. With a poisoned arrow, you take the arrow, you dip it in the poison. And when it hit its target, the poison would work its way through. Well, these are words that are taken and they are, they are so cruel. I don't know if you've ever done it. If you've ever said something and you see on someone's face instantly the hurt. And you realize that was so cruel of me to do that and to say that. Um, it's, you just realize how powerful, how powerful your words can be. I can't remember which one it is. Um, my, my Jane Austen is, I guess, not Pride and Prejudice. I think it was probably Emma, where there's a scene, if you see the film, where the, the heroine, there's a, a, a woman who's not all that sharp, not the sh- cleverest tack in the box, and yaks a lot. And there's a, a memorable scene where the heroine puts this person down in public. And her friend, who she's in love with, you know, the usual Jane Austen thing, and uh, says to her, that was not well done. Not well done at all. And you could see she really felt it because she'd done harm. I just wonder, out of curiosity, how many fires you started with your words and how much pain. Fourthly, verse 4, it's covert. They encourage, they shoot from ambush at the innocent. They shoot suddenly without fear. It's an ambush. It's done in secret. It's not open. That's one of the worst things, isn't it? It, it, Sometimes you know who's talking against you, but sometimes you don't. There's gossip. There are things that are being said about you, and you just don't know where. It's the opposite of what Paul says in Galatians 2.11. I opposed him to his face. When Paul was... 
thought that Peter was wrong, he didn't go to Barnabas and say, you see, Peter, I think he's a bit off. He didn't go and talk to the other apostles. He stood up in public and said to Peter to his face, you're wrong. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Do you know there there are some of us here, and we've got fierce tempers, and we'll say things, angry words, bitter words, and we'll say them out loud, and we'll say them to people. But there are others of us who are sitting here, and we're quite smug. We don't do that. Yeah, but I'll tell you what you do do. You secretly, secretly poison. You put words, thoughts into people's heads. That person, they did this. They said that. And it it, it is horrendous. David was faced with that. Then on to verse 5. Oops. Can you move on for me, Louise? Yeah. They encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding their snares. They say, who will see them? They encourage one another in wickedness. Isn't it incredible how often that happens? And yet, paradoxically, how easily God's people discourage one another. We don't provoke and encourage one another in goodness as much often as we encourage people in badness they think of themselves they think of their allies they think of their enemies but the one person they leave out of all their scheming is God they they say who will see it they plot injustice and say we have devised a perfect plan surely the human mind and heart are cunning they're covert they're cooperative they're cunning they think they are so smart you know, sometimes there are people who go, oh, I'm as thick as a brick and I'm not very academic and I'm not very intelligent. Oh, you're fly. You're very, very good. You know exactly what you're saying and what you're doing, but you pretend that you don't. Cunning. Got him. Done it. That's me. Paid them. Now, that's what David had to face and he had to face it with very strong physical consequences. You'll notice here as well that he's not really praying for freedom from the threat, but he's praying for freedom from the fear of the threat. Do you know what that's like? You walk into a room and people look at you and you think, what have they heard? What have they said? What's happening? You're very afraid. Fear can really cripple us. So how does God deal with that situation? How do we deal with it? Well, he goes on, verse 7. But God will shoot them with arrows. Suddenly they will be struck down. Spurgeon says they shoot and shall be shot. A greater archer than they shall take aim at their heart. They use words to attack God and his people. And God uses his word which is far more accurate. We will say words and sometimes they're like barbs that we don't know whether they're going to hit the target or not. Sometimes we say words and they, they, and they hurt people and we, we didn't even realize that was going to happen. But God, when God speaks, God's word always hits home. It always gets the target. The word of God is living and active, says Hebrews 4.12, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates 
even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I speak to you, you speak to me. Maybe we get a little bit under the skin. Maybe we have a lucky guess. Maybe we get something right. Maybe we've got decent understanding. Or maybe we get things completely wrong. Maybe we judge people and and get it all wrong. But God never gets it wrong. It's why it's one of the most dangerous prayers to pray, Lord, speak to me. Because sometimes God's word will come and it will convict us. And it's, it's, it's painful. It's like uh, in Emma. When Emma is, is convicted of, her, of the words that she said, just a, just a kindly word. That was not well done, Emma. That was not well done. It, it, it really gets to her. God always hits the target. Verse 8, God turns things around. He will turn their own tongues against them and bring them to ruin. All who see them will shake their heads in scorn. It's as though there's a shield and these arrows come flying, these barbed words, these poisonous and deceitful words come, and they bounce and they turn round. On the day of judgment, as you have meted out, so shall it be done to you. I was in uh, Perth this week and I was walking past a car uh, park, a couple uh, who it seemed to me were having quite an argument and I looked at their car and on the back of the car there was a sticker that said humanist society. There are two million people in Scotland who are good without God. I really wanted to go and say are you two of the two million but I hadn't the nerve. Um, I chickened out. Uh, Two million people who are good without God. Really? I think there are five and a half million people in Scotland. There's none good. No, not one. Whether with or without God. In Shakespeare's Measure by Measure. It's a, it's a wonderful play actually. But the, the themes are basically around mortality and mercy in Vienna. And in that he, he, he talks like this. He says, some rise by sin and some by virtue fall. It all seems so unfair. But the play itself is a reflection of what's being taught here. That one day it all gets sorted out. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. You're a gossip. All these words will come back. We're judged for them. God turns things around. And that's why in verse 9 he goes on to say, All people will fear. They will proclaim the works of God and ponder what he has done. David's in the desert. David's people are being poisoned against him. And yet David still has confidence that God will turn all that round. And as a result, the people will fear. My soul yearns for you, says Isaiah 26, 9. Yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. All people, all mankind The day is coming when no one will stand before God and accuse God of injustice, but when all injustice will be dealt with. And so verse 10, the righteous will rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. All the upright in heart will glory in him. That's why believing in a God who is just and who is judge is something that is actually a source of great joy. It's a sober joy, but it's a realistic joy. We believe there is a God of justice that he'll work out all things for the good of those who love him. 
And that's where the contrast with the atheist hope comes in because the atheist hope is we're all going to die anyway. We're going to be hit by a meteor. It doesn't matter. What's the point? And sometimes the good guys win and sometimes they don't and there's no justice. The Christian says, I know bad things will happen, but I know he will put all things right. In verses 7 to 9, the tense that's used in the Hebrew is something called the prophetic perfect, which we don't have in English. And what it means is that you're looking back from, um, or you're looking forward rather to the future in the same way as you'd look to the past. So in the past we can say, two days ago I did this, or in 1939 the Second World War started. These are things that happened in the past. You can't change them. They're, they're, They're there, they're fixed. Well here, the psalmist is looking forward and he's saying, God will judge. And it's as though he's looking back. He's saying this is fixed. This is as fixed as anything that has happened in the past. God has shot them down. Looking forward in God's eyes is as certain as looking back in ours. And so because of that, when we are faced with great injustice, great wrong, great disharmony, great ugliness in this world, what we do is we look forward. We look to God and we look to the day when all things wrong will be put right. There's the arrows, if you like, uh, arrows and slings of outrageous fortune, arrows and slings of outrageous words. And we think we can't stand under them. But God says, no, no. My word will deal with this. I will deal with this. All that is wrong and unjust and unfair will be judged. There is a day of judgment coming. Now, take all of that, and I want to apply this in the sense of Christ and what he did for us. There's a memorial this week. People have been remembering Anzac. They're remembering uh, Anzac Day, remembering Gallipoli and so on, and the tremendous slaughter that occurred there. And you'll hear people's different testimony. And sometimes you hear someone saying, well, my friend, he took the bullet that was meant for me. Well, I think when we think of Jesus Christ, we've got to think of him in this way, that he took the bullet that was meant for us. He took the arrow that was aimed at us. And I'll just mention it in terms of those six C's that I mentioned. First of all, complaint. David says, hear my, hear my voice, O God, as I voice my complaint. Christ did not complain. He went as a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't on the cross cry out, this is so unfair, this is so wrong. He cried out because he felt the abandonment of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But not once did you hear Christ say to Pilate or to the Jewish leaders or to the Roman soldiers or to his disciples. Not once did he say this is not right. This is not fair. Conspiracy. Oh, there was a clique against Christ all right. Psalm 2, they conspire together. But God laughs at them and sends his son. There's a conspiracy, which I think is a wonderful conspiracy. It's a conspiracy of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit conspiring to come together to save us. There are cruel words. 
said against Christ. Words that are designed to hurt. Saying to a man who is on a cross, go on then, come down if you can. If you say that you're the son of God, come on down. Not for a minute, of course, did they believe that he was. They were mocking him. They were mocking someone they believed to be insane or someone they believed to be pathetically weak. Isn't it incredible how cruel human beings can be to those who are far weaker than us? You are the son of God. They spat on him. They spat on Christ. Why? Why spit on Jesus? And not a word of complaint came from his mouth. It's good for you and I to remember that whatever is said about us, it is nothing compared to what was said about Jesus. And they were covert too. They came in the night to arrest Jesus. They cooperated. They plotted together. The Jewish leaders, the Romans, the devils. And they think too, who will see us? They think of themselves. They think of their allies. They think of their enemies. But they leave God completely out of the equation. Sometimes I listen to people mocking Christianity. Whether in a private environment. Or whether on the radio, on the television. And I think, it, for me it's not horrific in the sense of, um, oh you, you horrible people, look at what you're doing. For me I just think, you have no idea what you're doing. You are shooting arrows at the Son of God who is holy and pure and good. And these arrows will rebound on you. You're leaving God out of the equation. And they're cunning, very, very cunning. Look what Acts chapter 2 says. Peter, in Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Imagine standing there on the day of Pentecost and hearing that. And God's arrows... The words that you had shouted, if you are the son of God, come down. The mockery. Everything. And your words come back to you. You, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I... Love to think of this in this way. And I found this enormously helpful. At a kind of minor level and a major level. The minor level is when you are faced with criticism. When you are faced with gossip. When you are faced with bitterness. Don't lash out. Don't lash out. Pray for those who are doing that to you. Why? Because if you are a believer, you are the apple of God's eye. And what people are doing is they are shooting at God. As Christians, we take up the shield of faith. We cry out with David, Lord, protect my life from the threat of the enemy. Because you know the harm that words can do. You know the hurt. You know the sleepless nights. You know the pain. You know the sorrow. And you say, Lord, help and protect. Maybe you even have the grace to cry out, Lord, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. 
And I think you're able to do that because of this thing. And this for me is, if you take anything from this, take this. God has to judge what is sinful. He has to send his arrows. He has to, when we are bitter and gossiping and nagging and whatever else we do with our tongues that causes harm, that poisons, that brings evil, God has to deal with that. And therefore, all of us would stand before God right now and we would say, well, if anyone controls their tongue, they're a perfect person. And I'm sorry, but not one of us is a perfect person. Not one of us. I can... I'm not going to do it, but I could sit down and tell you three things this week, at least that I know of, where my tongue has been used in a bad way. And I'm sure that you are the same. And so God has to deal with that in order to be fair, in order to be just. God has to deal with that. And if I was to stand before God and say, look, on the one hand, I said this, but on the other hand, they said that. On the one hand, I did this, but on the other hand, I did this really, really good thing. Before God's standard of absolute, pure, and perfect justice, which is what we demand and what we want, he would say, get out. Go. You can't come into my presence. You are unclean. You are impure. Woe, says me, Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. The foul language, the poisonous language, the bitter language, the gossipy, the sarcastic goodness, the, the pride, the self-righteousness, all of that comes from within our heart and is poured out through our tongue or through our pens or computers. And we would stand before God in our sin, except we wouldn't stand, we couldn't stand. Except for this. The arrows of God were taken by Christ. He took a bullet for me. He took a bullet for you. He paid it all. He paid it absolutely all. Just think. Can you imagine this? Just think of one thing you did or said this week. Just one thing that you know deep in your heart was wrong. That you know it was hurtful. That you feel ashamed of it. You are thankful that very few people know about it. But you, in yourself, you genuinely are cut by it. And you're, you're thinking, oh my goodness. How, if people knew this, I've got bad news for you. God knows it. And compared with people, that's different. Different level, different league. And you're, the devil accuses you as well. And you're kind of almost overwhelmed. And then think, that one thing, just take that one specific thing and say, wait a minute, Jesus took the bullet for that. Jesus already paid for that. I'm already forgiven that. Do you know, in a very simple way, that's very easy to believe. Oh, Jesus paid for my sins. But I'll tell you this, in a practical way, it's really hard to grasp and really hard. I, I am. I'm forgiven for that horrible thing I said. I'm forgiven for that. I don't have to do anything. Well, you confess, you acknowledge it, but Jesus paid it all. When we sit at the communion table, you know what you're doing? You're not saying, I've been good this past wee while. I can take communion. I'm fine. You're saying, I'm not fine, but Jesus paid it all. And because I trust him, I'm taking it. David's fear is turned to joy. The righteous will rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. A kind of peaceful joy. And it's my hope that you will experience and know 
the joy of the Lord as you taste and see that God is good. I had a lovely um, tea in the middle of London this week. It was just so quaint. It was so English. You know what I mean. You know, it was just lovely. It was with Dick Dowsett and we go down. Uh, not Dick Dowsett, sorry. Um, Dick Lucas, who's lovely. And uh, those of you who've met uh, Dick, you know what I mean. And uh, out into the conservatory in the middle of London and we china teacups and, you know, cucumber sandwich vicar and all that kind of stuff. It was just, it was, it was lovely. And it was lovely being with him. And just, and he did ask for you all, and I said I would pass on uh, because he was here uh, before speaking to us. And he said something that I want to share with you that I found profoundly moving. He said, David, where's all our joy gone? Why are we as evangelical Christians so boring and so joyless? And I, th- I thought it was a great, great, great question. And I'll tell you what I think one of the problems is is we get the theology and we can say the theology, but we don't know how to apply it to our own hearts. Because I'm telling you this, if you really believe that Jesus paid it all, why would you walk around in guilt? Why would you walk around depressed at your own sin? Why would you try and hide it? Why would you think that you can get away with it? You can't. But he has. He's paid for it. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I hope as we take communion that you will uh, know and experience that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us and help us as we seek to apply it in our own lives. In your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.